The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1844, American essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson published a work called The Poet, which called for a new kind of poet, a distinctly American poet, to reflect the United States and all its virtues and vices. We need poets, the essay said. We need these liberated gods. Eleven years later, on July 4th, an unknown writer published a volume of verse called Leaves of Grass. His name was Walt Whitman, and he envisioned himself as the kind of poet and the kind of person who could fulfill Emerson's prophecy. I was simmering, 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 Whitman later said. Emerson brought me to a boil. Whitman sent a copy to Emerson, who recognized its power immediately. Extraordinary, he said, the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom America has yet contributed. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. I rubbed my eyes a little to see if this sunbeam were no illusion. Emerson wanted to travel to New York to pay the poet his respects. A century and a half later, the book and its poet still possess a power that roused Emerson and his colleagues. Whitman had the great career that Emerson predicted, and his legacy has been even greater. Walt Whitman, American Poet, is how he signed one of his poems. We'll discuss him today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for choosing to spend some time here today with us or with me. Take your pick. We're trying something different today, or at least we're starting something different. We will see how it goes. I was inspired by our conversation with Professor Ilan Stavins. What is American literature? Of course, you have to start by defining some terms. I'll skip over what and is Although Americans do have that great example of our former president saying, is, well, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is such a lawyer. But we'll skip what and we'll skip is, and we've already mostly defined literature here at the History of Literature podcast as being fiction and poetry and plays, maybe a little cinema once in a while, lyrics to a song here and there, but words that can move you, that make you think, that play on your emotions, that stretch you out, that call forth all your powers, as Dr. Johnson might say. But the real thorny definition is what is American literature, and for that we also need to look at what is America. We seem to be at a crossroads here in America, but, well, life is always a crossroads, isn't it, of some kind? The most tranquil period in American history that I've lived through, the 1990s, the Cold War finished and the age of terrorism not yet begun, that was a crossroads too. But this, where we are now, feels different to me. As Professor Ilan Stavins put it, we no longer have a single shared reality. We're diverging in what the truth is, in what basic facts are. And our project will be to converge, to figure out how to move forward together, or we're going, I don't know what. 
I don't know what we're going to do if we don't. To Will we fail? Or will we not move forward? We struggle along. And so we turn to literature, not because that's more important or more essential than, let's say, politics or religion or society or the Constitution or government or democracy, but because literature is there, observing, reflecting, and commenting on all those things and commenting on the human beings that form and inform all those things. We turn to literature not because it can answer our questions, but because it can help us ask them, to ask them in the deepest and most fundamental ways. And today, we turn to one figure, one man, who also lived during a period of crossroads, the greatest crossroads we've had so far, perhaps. But that almost doesn't matter. We have our prophet from that period, the secular prophet Abraham, last name Lincoln. We have our key thinkers like Frederick Douglass and take Thoreau or whoever, whichever other essayists you want. I think I did an episode on Emerson where I called him the Americanist American. Well, maybe so. Or maybe Emerson was, as has been suggested, the John the Baptist to our secular Christ, our literary secular Christ. Anyway, and the literary secular Christ was our subject today, Walter Whitman Jr., called Walt to distinguish him from his father. Walt Whitman, American poet. Ezra Pound said, Walt Whitman is America's poet. He is America. Pound also kind of hated Whitman. We'll have all of that for you later. But this is what's going to be different. I'm not trying to shoehorn anything in to fit our usual allotment of 45 minutes or an hour. I have an outline that's miles long, and I'm going to take my time. We'll take these looks at Whitman in chunks. I'm not going to put out a a 10-hour podcast or anything like that. At least I have no current plans to do that. Maybe, maybe Maybe we'll resort to that if we if we get there, if we have to, but we will take our time with Whitman and we'll sprinkle in episodes with the others on our list. We've got Henry James and William Blake, Edward Gibbon, we're headed to Nepal soon, and Australia and France and Russia. Plenty of time for everything and everyone. That's when that's what you can say when the future is wide open with the podcast. But we're also going to take our time with this guy, Walt Whitman, because he's so central and he's kind of fascinating. Critic Harold Bloom considered where America stood in relationship to European art and artists. This was in his book, The Western Canon. He said, ugh, I'm paraphrasing. He said, ugh, in music, painting, sculpture, architecture, our accomplishments are, quote, somewhat dwarfed, end quote. Note here, that Harold Bloom is a very particular kind of critic. And by particular kind, I mean particularly crusty and old. That's how I read him. He seems to have eliminated most forms of music from the consideration. Other than classical music, it's okay to use Bach and Mozart and Beethoven as the standard, he says. But when he reaches down to Stravinsky and Schoenberg and Bartok, I don't know why we can't include... Duke Ellington and Gershwin and John Williams and Quincy Jones and Prince and Bob Dylan on his list and say, our music hasn't been so bad. 
the blues. Okay, fine. Everyone has to draw some lines somewhere. It's the job of a critic, and music isn't our specialty, and it's not Harold Bloom's either, so let's move on. I appreciate his strong opinions. In painting, he says, the United States has had no Matisse. Okay, that's fine, but let's get to the point. He says, on behalf of United States artists and their general inferiority to Europe and South America and the other nations of the Western tradition, the exception comes in literature. He says in the last 150 years, he was writing 30 years ago, Harold Bloom, so it would be 180 now. I don't think things have changed too much then. He says in the past 150 years or so, not even Browning or Leopardi or, or Baudelaire overshadows Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson. And in the 20th century, he says... Frost, Stevens, Eliot, Hart Crane, Elizabeth Bishop, and some others rival the non-United States poets. Neruda, Lorca, Valerie, Yeats, Rilke, Montale. And he says our major novelists, Hawthorne, Melville, James, and Faulkner, are very close to George Eliot, Flaubert, Tolstoy, Proust, and Joyce, although he acknowledges something interesting. The America, and now I'll just say right up front, I'm going to follow Elon Stavins and use American and United States pretty much interchangeably, even though they're different, which I recognize. And sometimes I will clarify that I'm speaking about the Americas, including other countries as well. But for now, we'll just use American to mean the United States. He says, Bloom, back to Bloom, he says, the Americans, as major novelists, might really only be there for a single book, apart from Henry James. He says James had a career like George Eliot and Proust and jo Joyce and Tolstoy and Flaubert. He's in their league. Deserves mention among their ranks. And he says we have single books that matter in world terms. The Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, Huckleberry Finn, and As I Lay Dying. And then he says the book that matters most in world terms, is the 1855 original Leaves of Grass. Walt Whitman, says Bloom, is the center of the American canon. And yet it's this unhappy paradox, that's in quotes, that we have never got Whitman right. Bloom says he's immensely subtle, and he usually... He's usually doing almost the precise opposite of what he asserts himself to be doing. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I'm intrigued. Who was this guy, and how did he get to be who he is, who he was? This carpenter's son, of all things. My goodness, our secular literary Jesus has little parallels all over the place, doesn't he? No wonder he sometimes viewed himself in those blasphemous terms. Who was he? How the devil did he emerge? What was his project? What did he write? And how? What formed him? What did he form? What legacy did he leave? How can this book, The 1855 Leaves of Grass, be so... 12 poems. How can that be so important? What voice do we hear in it? What themes are there? What do we take from it? And is he still loud and persuasive or, or uh, engaging? 
Or have we moved on? Is there an America to discover somewhere in that voice of this man writing in the 19th century? And if so, what is it? We will begin our inquiry with a look at Walt Whitman's origins after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Walter Whitman Jr. was born 203 years ago in May of 1819 in a place on Long Island called West Hills. Born in New York and died 82 years later in New Jersey, and for most of his life he lived in what we now call the tri-state area. Long Island, Brooklyn, New York City, Queens, New Jersey, and some very important trips that he took elsewhere. He had a residence in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War where he worked as a nurse. And a three-month stretch in New Orleans when he was a young man that has almost disappeared from his biographies. But it shouldn't have. We will explore just why that stretch of time was so important. He was the second child of nine, and he was called Walt because his father was also a Walter, Walter Whitman Sr. His father was proud of being American. He named three of his other sons, Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. He was a free thinker who hated organized religion. His politics were fairly radical, actually. He knew Thomas Paine personally, which he was proud of, and he took young Walt to hear speakers like Francis Wright, a feminist-slash-socialist reformer, and Elias Hicks, a Quaker who promoted unorthodox doctrines. Hicks was also an early abolitionist. We'll be talking a lot about slavery and abolition in these episodes. Hicks was one of those. He came to speak in Brooklyn, and Whitman was there, and later Whitman spoke admiringly of Hicks, saying, quote, 
Always, Elias Hicks gives the service of pointing to the fountain of all naked theology, all religion, all worship, all the truth to which you are possibly eligible, namely in yourself and your inherent relations. Others talk of Bibles, saints, churches, exhortations, vicarious atonements, the canons outside of yourself and apart from man. Elias Hicks points to the religion inside of man's very own nature. This he incessantly labors to kindle, nourish, educate, bring forward, and strengthen. End quote. It was the kind of message that resounded through young Walt Whitman, and he kept it with him, too. When he turned to poetry, with the poet as kind of a religious bardic figure, part poet, part prophet, that was the sort of stance that Whitman occupied as well, both in his mission and in his figure. As a figure, as poet. What kind of world was this America? The United States in 1820 had not quite 10 million people in 23 states. The biggest city? New York City, teeming with 123,000 back in 1820 much bigger than Philadelphia at 63,000, or Baltimore at 62, or Boston at 43,000. These would barely register as cities today. New Orleans had 27,000 people. Tiny. Washington, by our standards. Washington, D.C. had 13,000, the ninth largest urban center in the country. By comparison, London in 1820 had 1.5 million people. China, meanwhile, has 380 million people total, more than three times as many as all of Europe combined. America had 9 million people. Basically, a backwater. But America, in this day, 1820, is growing fast, thanks to a continent full of bountiful natural resources and a stream of immigrants looking for a better life. By 1850, when Whitman starts Leave of, Leaves of Grass, it has more than doubled in size, and by the end of that decade, America has more than tripled. In other words, in the first 35 or so years of Walt Whitman's time on the planet, his country, America, has gone from being barely on the map to being a significant world presence. His city, if we combine New York and Brooklyn, has gone from being one-tenth the size of London to being nearly the same size, 100,000 people to over 1 million in 35 years. If you're in Walt Whitman's shoes looking around at America, what do you see? What do you see? A nation on the rise, packed with energy, both kinetic and potential. Will that energy be harnessed, or will it combust? Now, you might be thinking, okay, okay, thanks for all those numbers, Jack. But how are you counting people? And in particular, what about the slaves? Are they included? Are they not included? Are they counted as three-fifths of a person? as the Constitution counted them, and can I just give you one of the little stones in my shoe? Can I get this? Can I dump out this pebble and get this off my chest? We talk about three-fifths being a compromise. 
as if we'll say, well, Northerners wanted to count slaves as people 100%, and Southerners didn't want to count them at all. And so they had this monstrous compromise in the Constitution where they were counted as three-fifths of a person. And that's kind of right, but it's actually backwards. I mean, I don't mean it was, wasn't monstrous. It was monstrous. But that's not exactly how the negotiations worked. The negotiations were about how many members of the House of Representatives the states would get. And both sides agreed. One member per thousand voters was what they settled on. By the way, if that was our proportion today, Congress would have 332,000 members. Keep that in mind when you read about how responsive the House of Representatives is supposed to be to its constituents. Back then, it was one member per thousand voters. Actually, I misstated that, didn't I? I said it was one member per thousand voters. It was one member per thousand people. And that's where things got dicey. Not voters, people. But who are the people? Free people? And the North said, you can't count slaves when you're figuring out how many representatives you're supposed to get. They don't get, they don't get to vote, and you treat them like property. They're not people for you. And the South said, we absolutely need to count slaves as individuals in this. And the North said, if you do that, you're going to have way too many members because you have all these slaves that are going to make you look bigger than you are. And the South said, if you don't let us count them, you're, ju you're just going to outnumber us, and then you'll eliminate slavery, which is not what we want. And if that's the case, we're out. This is all back in the 18th century, this debate. And the South said, here we go. We'll also say that we'll count them for purposes of direct taxation. So when states get taxed, we'll have to pay more. So that's fair. So the compromise was... Here's how we'll count. We'll count 100% of free persons and indentured servants. We won't count Indians at all unless they're taxed. And we'll count three-fifths of everyone else, which will basically be all the slaves. And then the direct taxation never actually happened. So the states never paid extra based on their slaves. Meanwhile, they benefited from the extra seats in the house. In 1793, the South would have had 33 seats out of 105 if you had just gone by the population of free people. Instead, counting the slaves, three-fifths of the slaves, they had 47 out of 105, almost half. In 1812, just before Whitman was born, they should have had 59 out of 143 seats. Instead, they had 76, a majority of seats. And before you say, well, that's just the House, who cares? We also have the Senate and the presidency. Well, remember, the Senate is always rigged. It's tied to states and not population. And the presidency comes from the apportionment that the states get too. So the South in 1812 had a minority of free people, but a majority, if you count three-fifths of the slaves, except the slaves didn't get to vote on anything and the North, in these years, said, why are we being governed by these guys? The thing we don't like here is slavery. We've eliminated it in our states, and not only do we have to put up with it, but slavery itself has given these guys the majority. We're not just tolerating it, it's dominating us. But also, 
the North said, or thought, said not quite so loud, hmm, it's making the whole country rich. It's free labor. We're benefiting from that. So there were plenty of people in the North who said, ah, well, maybe it's for the best. I've got kids to feed and stuff I want to buy. So you see this in history over and over and over again. It's probably bad. We should probably do something about it. But hey, dollars don't grow on trees or pounds or pesos or shekels or yen or denarii or drachma or whatever currency you're using. This is the landscape we're in in America of Walt Whitman's time. These are the arguments that are going on. It's not just in our day looking back, but in the very beginning of the nation's founding. What to do about slavery as an institution, about the slave trade as a part of that institution, even white people who were at peace about slaves who had fooled themselves into saying, well, this is all compassionate and peaceful and it works for us, it works for them, it's Christian or it's Christian enough or whatever was in their minds when they were at home and the slaves were mostly off somewhere else. Or maybe there were one or two who were domestic servants who you, whom you could treat well. Even those people with blinders who, even those people recognized that the trade was a horrible feat. The trading of people was a horrible feature of slavery. They hated the auction block where humans were treated like cattle and families were ripped apart in front of your eyes. What to do about that? And what, what to do about the traders themselves, the people who were in this business? Nobody really liked those guys either. All this is going to be important for our discussion of Whitman. He's right there in the middle of this, these ideas. When you talk about humanity as he wanted to and about America and Americans as he took as his mission and his calling, you cannot ignore this stuff. And he didn't. He took sides, he developed views, and some of them are admirable, some are less so, some will need to unpack because they're complicated, so I want to spend some time on this stuff. Whitman was a politician as well as a poet, an actual politician, which we hardly ever talk about a member of the Free Soil Party, which is worth spending a little time on when we get there. We'll get there. We're taking our time with Walt Whitman. Don't worry. We will also get to his poems, of course. Let's go back to Walt Whitman Sr., friend of radicals. Oh, wait. Interrupting myself. I almost forgot. Before we took that little detour, we were looking at the numbers of the population. So you can see why it's so important to include slaves or to know if you're excluding them. When I gave you the 9 million figure, that was from the 1820 census, which was 9.6 million people in America, of which 1.5 million were slaves. So 8 million free people, 1.5 or so million slaves. Jump ahead to Whitman's middle years, the Leaves of Grass era, 1850 to 1860. The overall population in the United States has grown from under 10 million as it was in 1820 to 31 million and counting. And the number of slaves has increased as well to about 4 million. So in other words, America in the first few decades of Whitman's life added 21 million people, including another 2.5 million slaves. A lot of growth in a fairly short amount of time. So that is a lot of slaves being added, but also tens of millions of people who are coming mostly from European countries flowing in to the United States. 
So Walter Whitman Sr., he was a skilled carpenter, hardworking, tough, a little dour, moody is the word commonly associated with him. Walt actually doesn't talk about him a lot. He was his mother's child. His mother was kind and gentle and affectionate, and that's what Walt wanted to be. Later in life, he would say that he saw sides of his father that would come out in him, inherent in him, and would emerge whether he liked it or not. In one of his poems, he describes a father in terms that biographers generally believe are similar to Walt's own feelings about his father. In those poems, the father is, quote, strong and self-sufficient, but also manly, mean, angered, and unjust, given to the blow, the quick, loud word, the tight bargain, the crafty lure, end quote. Walter Whitman Sr. tried moving into real estate ventures, kind of a natural step for a skilled carpenter. He would buy a house, move into it, fix it up, flip it, but didn't work so well. He pretty much led to the family moving around a lot as he bought and sold and fixed, moved out again, kept failing. His money woes fueling those quick, loud words, no doubt. As Whitman got older, as Walt got older in his 20s and 30s, his father's health started to fail, and Walt took over as the leader of his family, and the publication of Leaves of Grass almost coincided with his father's death. It was like a spiritual rebirth. In the preface, Walt describes a son calmly observing a father's corpse being carried from the house, which was Not his own father, his father hadn't yet died, but it can be seen as a kind of foreshadowing. The poet, and in particular Walt Whitman, American poet, needed to be free from the shadow of his overbearing father. And with the casting off of this influence or pressure, a poet and a person could emerge. Is it like casting off Europe? Hmm. We will see. Whitman's mother was born Louisa Van Velsor. Later, Whitman would use Velsor as part of one of his pseudonyms. She was a few years younger than her husband, Walter Sr., and she was 24 when her second child, Walt, was born. Eight of her nine children survived into adulthood, but Walt was special among them. She loved Walt and depended on him, and he returned the affection Later writing, quote, How much I owe her. It could not be put in a scale, weighed. It could not be measured, be even put in the best words. It can only be apprehended through the intuitions. Leaves of grass is the flower of her temperament active in me. I wonder what leaves of grass would have been if I had been born of some other mother. End quote. Throughout her life, Walt sent her money and books and newspapers and other clippings, things for her to read. She wrote him letters of appreciation for everything she received. She was not well-educated, neither was Walt, for that matter, only having a few years of schooling by our standards. But although sometimes people say that she was illiterate, that's not quite right. She was more self-taught than illiterate. She was very intelligent. She didn't capitalize letters, and she misspelled a lot of words, and she was pretty free-form when it came to punctuation. But clearly she was intelligent, and guess what? 
When you read her letters, you hear the rhythms of her speech and even her thought. And what better training for our young poet in training? What better confidence builder for a poet who's about to break free from standard meter and verse, from the rigors of it? What better example than to see the example as exemplified in the person, in the writing of the person, the person he loves the most in the world, whom he most admires, and he can see, well, this is how she communicates her thoughts, her ideas, and it's perfect for her. Why can't I do something similar with my verse? Maybe not in a letter, but maybe in the poetic equivalent of it. Hmm. Mm. Did Whitman's mother's writing free him to break all the rules that were then in existence and develop free verse? Well, go write your papers on that, my young grasshoppers, or in this case, my young leaves of grasshoppers. Tell your teachers Jack sent you and then watch them turn those A's into F's with one easy erasure. Okay, Walt had a few traits of his father, but a million traits of his mother. On Long Island, this is him now. This is a quote. Quote, up on Long Island, often people would say, men, women, children would say, you are a Whitman. I know you. When I asked how they knew, they would up with a finger at me. By your features, your gait, your voice, they are your mothers. I think all that was, is true. I could see it in myself. End quote. We'll talk more about gender, about sex, about motherhood, about care, about comradeship, caring for others, being motherly, the earth as a mother, a mother of all, and where a poet fits into this, where our poet fits into this. It's one of the tropes that Whitman returns to again and again. But I see we're running out of time, and we need to jump into some poetry. So let's do this. Let's stop there with the parents. Whitman was proud of his heritage, his heritage as an American. This is still very new in the life of the United States and revolution in France, for that matter. American democracy is barely out of the cradle, if it even is. Not even 50 years old when Whitman's born. That's a blip in time and changing fast. We need to talk about Whitman's career as a printer and a teacher and his trip to New Orleans, the rumors that he was tarred and feathered and his novels. Did you know about Whitman's novels? We'll talk about them, but we're going to save all that for the next episode. Let's talk about Walt Whitman, the American, and Walt Whitman, the poet. Walt Whitman, the American. It's right there in his first lines of the first poem in Leaves of Grass, right there in Song of Myself. Not in his first version, the 1855 version, but in one of the ones that he added to later. He says, I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood, formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same, 
and their parents the same. I, now 37 years old, in perfect health begin, hoping to cease not till death. End quote. Formed from this soil, born here of parents, born here from parents the same, and their parents the same. Why is he so proud of this? Today, when everything is mixed, people look back to the Mayflower and say, see, see how white I am, how European I am. I can trace it. I can trace my heritage all the way back to England. Mayflower. I'm not a a new upstart like you others. I've got a pedigree. That's kind of the opposite of what Whitman is doing here. Whitman is saying, I don't need to write like Europeans. I don't need to look backwards. I don't need to look to Europe. I don't defer to Europe. I don't need to fit myself into that tradition. I don't need their stamp of approval. I don't need to find influences there or energy there or anything else. My atoms are from here. Parents upon parents upon parents. My ancestors go back into the recesses of history. I spring from this soil. I breathe this air. There's a whole continent here. And I am part of it. And I am it. America needed a poet. It needed its own poetry, and it needed a poet to sing it. Whitman was announcing his candidacy for the job, but this was not an interview or an audition. He had assumed the job. He was announcing that the job was his, and he lived the rest of his life as if he was honored to be in that, to be holding that job, to be in that job or to be living out that destiny. And it was part of his tribute to himself and to poetry and to America that he was in that role as America's poet. Okay, so America needed a poet. And it wasn't just Whitman who thought so. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was sort of the dean of American letters at the time, thanks to his essays and his speaking tours, the Americanist American, as I called him before, was calling for such a figure. In 1844, when he came out with his essay, The Poet, Whitman was 25 or so, working as a printer, writing some fiction, some stories, some poems. He was not Walt Whitman in all caps, not Walt Whitman, American poet, but more of a, an ambitious or restless hack when this essay came out, the essay called simply The Poet, the essay that predicted Walt Whitman foresaw him. Emerson prophesied what a poet should be, a poet who would be worthy of America as if he were setting out a pair of shoes. And a man came along and tried them on. The shoes were large, but that was fine because the man turned out to be a giant. Let's take our last break and come back with Emerson and the poet. Okay, before we look at Emerson's essay, The Poet, in which he called for a new kind of American poet, let's set up some contrasts to give us some context. Here are a couple of famous poets, one British, one American, 
that I think will do the trick for us. What was popular in 1844, the year that Emerson's essay came out? What was he talking about when he was talking about the poetry that was currently in existence? And what was popular in those 10 years in between Emerson's essay, The Poet, and Whitman's Leaves of Grass? What, in other words, did Emerson and Whitman want from poetry that they were not getting? In Britain, we were in the post-romantic generation of poets, and one of the leaders of that next-up generation, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Let's look at him. Tennyson followed the great six of the romantic poets. He was the prize winner of his day, the great poet laureate for much of the Victorian era. Coleridge approved of Tennyson's early poetry. Tennyson took the baton, but he was veering into the stylized and the sentimental. Accomplished, to be sure. Some of his rhyming and rhythm were flawless. But remember that Emerson is the guy who called Edgar Allan Poe Jingle Man. Sometimes we can admire art that we find soulless and lacking. I don't count syllables when I read haiku, and I hope you don't either. Who cares if someone can count to five and seven and five again? Make me drop my book, staggered, my eyes misty and staring off at the horizon. Don't make me tap my fingers on the table and nod with appreciation. Oh, you did it. Five, seven, five. You did it. I'm reading poetry. Damn it. I'm not doing a wordle. Here's one of Tennyson's poems from 1842. It's called Break, Break, Break. Break, break, break on thy cold gray stones, O sea, and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. Oh, well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh, well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill, but oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, 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 at the foot of thy crags, O sea, but the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. You hear that? You hear what I mean by jingle man? This is... (laughs) This is sounds, this is fitting words into their spaces... Something good about that, but what is this really about? Does it feel like does it feel like Tennyson has opened up a vein and is letting his his soul pour out onto the page? I don't think so. In America, we had Tennyson's mirror image, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the most popular poet of his day. He had not yet written the Song of Hiawatha, which at least tried to get some American rhythms going. But in 1842, When Emerson, just before Emerson came out with his essay, The Poet, Longfellow was writing poems like this one, called The Skeleton in Armor. The Skeleton in Armor by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Speak, speak, thou fearful guest, who with thy hollow breast, still in rude armor dressed, comest to daunt me. Wrapped not in eastern balms, but with thy fleshless palms, stretched as if asking alms, Why dost thou haunt me? Then from those cavernous eyes, pale flashes seemed to rise as when the northern skies gleam in December. 
And like the water's flow under December's snow came a dull voice of woe from the heart's chamber. I was a Viking, old, my deeds, though manifold, no scald in song has told, no saga taught thee. Take heed that in thy verse thou dost this tale rehearse, else dread a dead man's curse, for this I sought thee. Far in the northern land, by the wild Baltic's strand, I with my childish hand tamed the gerfalcon. And with my skates fast-bound, skimmed the half-frozen sound that the poor whimpering hound trembled to walk on. Hmm. Accomplished. Yes, definitely. But where's America in this? It's about a Viking skeleton found in armor, maybe in an American museum or a collector's home, but it could just, just as easily be a London home or a Scottish home or anywhere in Europe, for that matter. And the meter, what does this have to do with America? With the American project, it's as if Longfellow is looking for a pat on the head from Tennyson. I have more examples of poems like this, but let's move on. Two's enough. Those poems were both from 1842. Emerson looked around and said, WTF are we doing? Where are the poems and the, that's a paraphrase, where are the poems and the poets that spring from this soil, that breathe this air, that make sense of democracy and immigration and slavery and this whole land with its vastness its rivers and waterfalls, its oceans and forests and canyons. We have states. We have a constitution. We had a declaration of independence. We've got a lot of stuff going on in here, in this nation. What will reflect this and embody this? He says poets have to have this wholeness, this fire that comes out of them. It can't just be one little part of your brain the part that does crossword puzzles or makes crossword puzzles, the part that says, well, give me a few rules and I'll fit words into them. A poet has to be part of the whole world, the earth, the heavens, the ideas, the soul of where he or she lives. Emerson says people like Longfellow, he doesn't use his name, but it fits. He says these esteemed umpires of taste have an inclination for something elegant, but it's as if you've rubbed a log of dry wood in one spot to produce a fire and the rest of the log is cold. He says, these studies of fine arts look at rules and particulars, but it's shallow. Quote, men seem to have lost the perception of the instant dependence of form upon soul. There's no doctrine of forms in our philosophy. We were put into our bodies as fire is put into a pan to be carried about. But there is no accurate adjustment between the spirit and the organ. Even the poets are contented with a civil and conformed manner of living and to write poems from the fancy at a safe distance from their own existence." End quote. Emerson says, we are not pans of fire, we're not torchbearers, we're children of the fire. That's his quote. Children of the fire made of it, and only the same divinity transmuted and at two or three removes when we know least about it. And this hidden truth, that the fountains whence all this river of time and its creatures floweth, are intrinsically ideal and beautiful 
draws us to the consideration of nature and functions of the poet, or the man of beauty, end quote. He goes on to say, The breadth of the problem is great, for the poet is representative. He stands among partial men for the complete man, and apprises us not of his wealth, but of the commonwealth. The young man reveres men of genius because, to speak truly, they are more himself than he is. They receive of the soul as he also receives, but they more. Nature enhances her beauty to the eye of loving men from their belief that the poet is beholding her shows at the same time. He is isolated among his contemporaries by truth and by his art, but with this consolation in his pursuits that they will draw all men sooner or later. For all men live by truth and stand in need of expression, in love, in art, in avarice, in politics, in labor, in games. We study to utter our painful secret. The man is only half himself. The other half is his expression. End quote. Imagine this call for a poet in the, this vaunted language, in these lofty terms. Imagine how such a call would land on the ears of someone writing verses about a skeleton in armor. Well, that ain't me, I can imagine Longfellow saying. Wow. <laughs> and Whitman pointing at Longfellow and saying, well, you ain't talking about him. You're talking about me. You just don't know it yet. Here's more from Emerson. The poet is the sayer, the namer, and represents beauty. He is a sovereign and stands on the center. For the world is not painted or adorned, but is from the beginning beautiful. And God has not made some beautiful things, but beauty is the creator of the universe. Therefore, the poet is not any permissive potentate, but is emperor in his own right. Criticism is infested with a cant of materialism, which assumes that manual skill and activity is the first merit of all men and disparages such as say and do not, overlooking the fact that some men, namely poets, are natural sayers, sent into the world to the end of expression and confounds them with those whose province is action, but who quit it to imitate the sayers. But Homer's words are as costly and admirable to Homer as Agamemnon's victories are to Agamemnon. The poet does not wait for the hero or the sage, but as they act and think primarily, so he writes primarily what will and must be spoken, reckoning the others though primaries also, yet in respect to him, secondaries and servants, as sitters or models in the studio of a painter, or as assistants who bring building materials to an architect. For poetry was all written before time was, and whenever we are so finely organized that we can penetrate into that region where the air is music, we hear those primal warblings and attempt to write them down, but we lose ever and anon a word or a verse and substitute something of our own and thus miswrite the poem. The men of more delicate ear write down these cadences more faithfully, and these transcripts, though imperfect, become the songs of the nations. For nature is as truly beautiful as it is good, 
or as it is reasonable, and must as much appear as it must be done or be known. Words and deeds are quite indifferent modes of the divine energy. Words are also actions, and actions are a kind of words, for it is not meters, but a meter-making argument that makes a poem, a thought so passionate and alive that, like the spirit of a plant or an animal, it has an architecture of its own and adorns nature with a new thing. The thought and the form are equal in the order of time, but in the order of Genesis, the thought is prior to the form. The poet has a new thought. He has a whole new experience to unfold. He will tell us how it was with him, and all men will be the richer in his fortune. For the experience of each new age requires a new confession, and the world seems always waiting for its poet. End quote. Emerson is like Ben Kenobi. He actually uses the phrase new hope. We're waiting for a new hope. And Luke Skywalker, the son of a carpenter living in Brooklyn, working as a printer and a hack novelist and a poet, said, I'm here. Simmering, 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 and Emerson started the boil. And this is beautiful. This new hope wrote his book of poems, including a, a preface to it, but mainly the poems are what's important. And he sent it all to Emerson and Emerson recognized it immediately. I greet you at the start of a great career, he said in return. So let's pause there. Next time, we're going to dive into the Whitman story, including the leaves of grass and just how Whitman embodied the poetry. We'll show him dropping his payload into the Death Star, so to speak, blowing up American poetry as it then existed. But let's end with Emerson and his prophecy. Quote, The sign and credentials of the poet are that he announces that which no man foretold. He is the true and only doctor. He knows and tells. He is the only teller of news, for he was present and privy to the appearance which he describes. He is a beholder of ideas and utterer of the necessary and casual. For we do not speak now of men of poetical talents or of industry and skill in meter, but of the true poet. End quote. We are looking for something new, for someone new. And Walt Whitman said, Here it is, and here I am. Okay, there we go. That concludes part one of our look at Walt Whitman. Next time we'll talk about his break with the past and how he forged his future, the future. And we'll cover his early novels and his trip to New Orleans. We're going to see what he was like before he became the white-bearded legend. What was he like as a young man finding his way in life and in poetry? We will probably have that next Thursday because Monday we're going... Oh, let's look at the calendar here. Ah, yes. Memorial Day, a History of Literature Best Of episode. How perfect, because we're looking at soldiers and war and writers and war and anti-war sentiments. That's next. 
So please do subscribe and tell all your friends to do the same. We've got, if you need an enticement, well, we've got Henry James and William Blake and the storytelling women of Roanoke Island coming up. And Zora Neale Hurston and Elizabeth Bishop are on our list, all scheduled to come up soon. And did I mention Wallace Stegner, the Dean of American Western Writers? He's in there too. And the Czech novelist who coined the word robot. We'll have a little sci-fi for you fans of that genre. And Kierkegaard, still on our list, we got a request for Hegel. My goodness, talk about zagging where others zig. We haven't even done Shelley yet, and people are calling for Hegel. But okay, fine, Hegel's on the list too. But he's after Nietzsche and my man Schopenhauer. That guy, that wretch, so miserable, I can't resist him. Speaking of which... One thing I can't resist, no matter how hard I try, is the passage of time and the need to say farewell. I hate doing it. It breaks my heart, but I can't talk for hours upon hours. Who could do that and who would want to listen? And so, dear listeners, I will say, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.